Hello and welcome to In A Good Place, the wellbeing and personal development podcast from Hello, hosted by me, Rosie Nixon. It's great to have you here. In each episode, I'll be chatting to an inspirational personality. And for this, our second season, I'm also going to talk to our guests about key moments when their lives moved into a new chapter. I'm calling this a reset, and it's a topic that gets me really excited. Since we launched this podcast, I've been on my own reset journey. I've refashioned my working life, going from editor-in-chief to the role of creative brand ambassador at Hello, allowing myself more time for my family and for my other passion, writing books. It has given me a new lease of life. So I thought this would be a really interesting area to dive into with my guests. So I've asked them to come to the recording with two reset moments for us to discuss as part of the chat. At the end of each conversation, there will be some takeaways and I guarantee you will feel one step closer to creating the life you want to wake up to. Here at Hello, we love smashing a taboo and especially when it comes to giving airtime to women's health issues. Did you know that one in three women will experience some form of bladder weakness in their lifetime? It's an especially common experience for new mums. And 30% of women are using the wrong products to help manage these issues. It's important to always seek medical advice, but in the meantime, the 10 discrete ultra pads range are specifically designed for bladder weakness, keeping you dry and odor free for up to 12 hours. So as a busy mum, you can go about your everyday life in confidence. Thank you, Tenna, for being a part of our mission to support others in vulnerable moments. So my guest this week is Dr. Alex George. After finding fame as the hot A&E doctor on the fourth series of Love Island in 2018, Alex has gone on to make a name for himself as a TV health expert, social media star, podcaster and a champion of mental health. Alex is also an author and recently took home the prize for Best Children's Non-Fiction title at the British Book Awards for his book, A Better Day. His personal life has not been without struggle, and in 2020, Alex's younger brother died by suicide, a tragic event that would shatter his world and further motivate his work in the mental health field. Since leaving A&E, where he worked during the pandemic, Alex is on a mission to see mental fitness better supported in the UK, and in 2021, he was made a government advisor on youth mental health. I have no doubt that this conversation is going to inspire us all. So welcome, Alex, to the podcast. Thank you. What an introduction. And uh, it was a sunny day the last time I saw you, and it is today a beautiful day. We, we obviously, um, while we were at Wimbledon, it was very fortunate. We were. Very exciting to be there. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a glorious occasion, wasn't it? So maybe... Maybe we'll go for a game of tennis at yeah, some we, point. I've actually, funnily, funnily enough, in the last few weeks, I started picking up tennis. I've not played for many, many years. And I thought, you know what? It is a great sport to get you outside. And uh, yeah, I've been enjoying it, actually. You're so right. And weirdly, so have I. I've played it recently on holiday, first time in years. Used to love it as a teenager. So maybe that will happen. Yeah, it's a great form of exercise. There we go. Let's have a game. You have a bit of practice. I'll have a practice. We'll come together and we'll see what happens. Now, I'm going to kick off by asking you the first question that I ask all my guests, which is, are you in a good place? I'm in a good place. I'd say, uh, yeah, in between, in between. I think, um, so for context, uh, as a recording, this is coming up to three years from when my brother died. So obviously anniversary has been quite difficult. That plays into a lot. I'm six months alcohol free, which is something I'm very proud of. For context, I'm not, I don't suffer from addiction. So I'm not comparing to that scenario, but it's still not easy to stop drinking. And also it means you face a lot more. We don't have that kind of numbing agent that we have or that social mm-hmm. lubricant that we use all the time. It's a lot, it is harder in many ways. I think it's an amazing thing, but it is harder. And you have to face a lot of things from grief to to everything that's difficult or happened in your life. You have to face things a lot more. So mm. interesting. Sometimes we think about being in a good place in the immediacy of time in terms of like, how do I feel now? Do I feel happy or unhappy? But sometimes being in a good place isn't necessarily about being feeling great all the time. It's actually like, are you in a good place because you're facing your issues and your problems and your challenges yes. or you being avoidant. So sometimes go, yeah, yeah, I'm so happy. Like I'm really, really happy, but actually their behaviors are not reflective of someone who is at peace or who is in a good place, even though they might be feeling that they are. So it is actually a very complex question, a complex answer. Mm. Um, you know, uh, we carry our scars with us. Sometimes those scars hurt, they sting. Um, and other times they, they hurt less. 
yeah, how are you? Are you in a good place? I think that's such a brilliant point, actually, that you've raised there. It's about being conscious about how you feel. Mm. I mean, I, I was in a good place when I woke up this morning. I did my sort of gratitude list, mm. which I tried to do every morning. Mm. And then I realised that the cat had a tick on its face. So that oh, no. <laughs> quickly threw me into not such a good mm. place in a sort of panicky morning. Mm. But you're right. We have to welcome in that sort of kaleidoscope of emotion and accept that we're not going to be happy all the time. I think it's probably one of the biggest, um, the biggest mistakes that we make. And I think one of the biggest lies that we tell people is that, you know, you should try and be happy. Um, mm -hmm. I think happiness is just one deflection from the baseline of, of peace of your, of your baseline. Mm -hmm. Like it's, you've got happiness, sadness, uh, excitement, grief, joy, elation, all these different things are, they all play a role. None of them are inherently good or bad. Being happy isn't inherently good or bad. If you're happy when your best friend's died, then that's bad, mm. very, very bad. If you're you know, like everything has its place. Equally, being unhappy all of the time is not good. Yeah. But being unhappy when bad things happen, I think, is good. In fact, I don't think you can process without feeling sad, you know, without, without that. It's an important emotion. And also, if you look at humanity and facing issues if we're just like for example smiling away meanwhile the, the you know the environment's burning and climate change is happening you know discomfort forces us to make a change if we're all just smiling oh it's great it's getting hotter every year and the ice you know the world's melting and la -di -da, -di da smiling away which some would argue that's kind of to me what is happening but you know, mm -hmm. you know, if, if we take it that at some point there's going to be enough pain that we have to do something the point is that that pain makes us take an action. And, and, and that's why I don't yeah. think trying to be happy all the time is particularly healthy. I think it's much better to aim to be at peace. Um, the same as in relationships. I think we miss settle that relationships should be wonderful, exciting, and adrenaline-filled. But, um, you know, Newton's third law, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So if yeah. it is a really high elatory relationship, chances are there'll be big falls from that elation. There probably will be the opposite energy as well, like, you know, I'm not trying to say that all people that are really happy also argue all the time, but there is probably the assumption that you've got a very someone who is really up, they're also can be really down, and there's good mm -hmm. and bad in that. And I think probably if you're looking at health of a relationship, it's probably much better to have more gentle ebbs and flows and have general peace whereby you wake up in a peaceful, safe, content environment that you feel that you are. Yeah, at peace. You're not chasing an emotion. What are they thinking? How are they feeling? Do they still love me? Do I love them? How do I feel? Are we having a great time? Are we arguing again? Or you know, yeah. you think life is very much like that. As well, if you're chasing happy, 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 as soon as you're sad, that's a huge issue, and you feel sadness ten times worse because you shouldn't be sad. You should be always happy. Um, yeah. You know, and that's why you know in the, in the mind manual and in a better day, I've really tried to be careful about that conversation around happiness. Um, you know, I, I say in the mind manual, happiness is an inside job. And I kind of use that to kind of, as a starting point to, well, spell yeah. basically a whole chapter talking about the fact that in many ways, happiness is, is, isn't actually the goal, you know, and that's, that's the point is a range of tool, a range of emotions that we have. And we want to experience happiness at times, but not all the time. Mm. Does it come down to self-awareness? Yeah, I think sometimes we can be too inward, um, certainly. You know, the the opposite of pain, uh, opposite of addiction, the opposite of sadness, anxiety, and all these things is presenteeism. Because if you're present and the present moment you're in isn't painful and it is at peace, then you don't experience any of those things. But in reality, we live so much in the past and so much in the future that is why we experience depression is, you know, you're largely your, um, the way that we ruminate on the past and anxiety is our worries about how our past and maybe present might implicate on our futures, but from a negative standpoint. And so if self-awareness allows you to be present and to be like, okay, I'm aware that I'm spending so much time in the past. What about this moment right now? That's yeah. helpful. But self-awareness just means that you're spending your whole time ruminating on past mistakes or regrets. Then I, I don't think that that is, that is helpful. And that's why there's a bit of a balance with it all. You know, I think mm -hmm. people think that therapy is about sitting and going over and over and over things. And yeah, there is. I mean, I've, I've, I've just come now from a therapy session. 
So, uh, and I do therapy every week and yeah, there is a lot of oh, like what happened here? Like, what was my reaction? What was the action? What was, what happened? But a lot of it yeah. also like, how do I learn to control so that I'm not constantly living in the past and future that I am actually living in the present. Yeah. And how are you sort of preparing yourself ahead of what will assumedly be quite a difficult anniversary coming up? three years since your brother passed away? I think your preparation is in everything you do every day and it's your habits and your long term. I think it's, you know, it's been a, it's been a tough few years. It's been a lot of stuff. Some stuff I'll go into, mm. some stuff I wouldn't go into. But, you know, my life has been a lot of very, very big highs maybe. I don't quite necessarily mean high in terms of like I feel really happy, but I guess like big moments in my life, but also really low moments as well, like really, really like, you know, desperately low and um you know and the culmination on that is that it, it takes its toll you know and I, when i was uh, you know not exercising not eating the way i wanted to um you know that the alcohol was still in my life that i was kind of trying to deal with the kind of shock waves that that was happening i don't know that that was the healthiest time of my life whereas like mm -hmm. i have taken the, the last 18 months or so i've kind of been becoming aware that I need to also implement or re-implement, to be fair to myself, a lot of the things that I know that are that are helpful. And so like, you know, when I've written the mind manual, I'm not like, hey guys, I'm I'm like, you know, I'm living this perfect life. You know, there's certain people out there in the well-being space that I think project this idea that they're like, look at me, I'm I live a perfect life and I'm this, you know, yeah. god of all uh, well-being. And I just that is always a red flag to me that people probably are behind the scenes are struggling more than than anyone else. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I, I've, I've tried to share like, do you know what, like this stuff does take continuous work. It takes dedication. Mm -hmm. You are going to slip up sometimes. Maybe you will fall out of the routine. And so that's why it's important to be able to like reestablish and build those habits and try and be kind to yourself as well. You know, I've yeah. got back into exercise. I don't drink alcohol. I'm not saying I don't ever want to drink alcohol but certainly at the moment as of today and, and tomorrow I don't really want to drink alcohol and I'll just see where that that takes me and I think a lot of that stuff is your preparation and just seeing how I feel you know like it yeah. might be tough sometimes the anniversary is harder or easier sometimes the build-up to an anniversary is harder than the day itself in many ways yes you're right you kind of have it in your mind for such a long time don't you you're getting closer and closer when you get to the day like it's more, no different to any other day is it the sun still rises, it'll still set, the birds will still sing, the rain will still fall, different to any other day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. We do put a lot of pressure on ourselves sometimes, don't we, mm. for big dates. Um, I thought that was so interesting what you said about perfectionism as well, because it strikes me that there are certain things that we can't control that go on in the wider world. And there is a lot of perfectionism there. You know, we're having that sort of thrown at us daily. You know, we only have to take a peek on social media to see all these images of perfectionism. And we can't necessarily control that. But what we can control is our own response to it. Yeah, I think um, we just live in a very stimulant-based society where everything's about um, action and reward. Um dopamine kind of hits of doing things and you know that, that's generally I think a lot of how society is built it's not really built around being peaceful or being present in the time a lot of it's comparison of like I guess like you know on the weekends you know um say for example as someone who doesn't drink alcohol actually weekends aren't necessarily always the easiest because most of society socializing is based around the consumption of alcohol especially on sunny days especially on bank holidays it's kind of like if a bank holiday feels a lot of the time like it's a free ticket just to drink as much as you want and it's fine because yeah. it's a holiday. Same as kind of Christmas, I think. It's like you can drink and eat whatever you want and it's fine because we're labelling it as this day that everyone does it, which, fine, like no judgment. People can do what they want to do, but it does make it for people that are, for people that are not in that, it is a bit more tricky because then you're like, oh, yes. am I missing out on the fun? Are they living? And yeah, you have to kind of be aware of your own propensity to kind of compare and go, oh, they're having such a great time. You know, I find bank holidays more difficult because of that reason. You know, you're kind of a, yeah, sort of fantastic time. What a, a societal expectation. Now, we're going to go into sort of your decision to um, give up alcohol in a sec because you've given me two really great reset moments that we will discuss. Um, I just wanted to bring it back quickly to the mind manual, which I've got right here. And there was a really great statement that you um, made about it, which is, while the national conversation on mental health has seen an improvement in services and how we talk about 
times of crisis, we rarely, if ever, talk about the everyday effort that is required to keep our mental health in check. And I thought that was such a good sentence because thinking about our mental health in everyday terms is so powerful. Mm. So what do you mean by this? Well, I think it's the reason I chose to say that, you know, this, well, on the cover in the book, it's, it's mental fitness tools for everyone because I think mental mm. fitness, like physical fitness, requires an action. It requires dedication. It, re it requires the commitment to that cause. And it's hard work. Going to the gym and going on the treadmill or lifting weights, it is by definition work. It's hard work. You are breaking down muscles, you're stressing your cardiovascular system to grow back stronger. And you're doing similar things, perhaps in a slightly different way, but similar things with mental fitness. It does require, like if I stopped going to the gym for six months, my muscles would shrink, my cardiovascular system would be weaker, my ability to tolerate exercise become worse. I'd get so much more lactic acid when I exercise because I'd be less efficient metabolically. So the, what I'm saying is that if you stop practicing, then you'll get worse at it. It's like if you play guitar and you've been mm. playing guitar for five years and you stop playing for two years, you're obviously going to be a lot worse at it. And your mental fitness is the same. If you work mm. mental fitness a little bit each day and you build it up over time, like it will get stronger from whatever from wherever you start whatever baseline you start from it will get better and I think sometimes yeah there's a slightly defeatist mentality but I can understand because I've been in those points of desperation where when you feel really awful you're like I can't get better and going for a walk what's that going to change or what's going to change if I eat better it's not going to help I feel miserable and it's true that going for a run right now is not going to transform your overall mental health there is a separate conversation that has going for a run ever made things worse? Probably not. So you're already, already yeah. standing to potentially win. You might have a bad ankle, in which case maybe not. But mm -hmm. one is that you need to de be dedicated over time. And like when you go to the gym, actually, it's hardest at the start. You feel roughest. You're sore, so say, ages after you start lifting weights. It gets easier. And it's absolutely the same with practicing mental fitness. You know, medita from meditation or from being in nature, from reflective writing, to exercise, exercise is a massive part of mental fitness. It's not just about physical fitness. I would say it is almost a bigger part in my, for me, I, I go to the gym more for my mind than probably almost any other thing in reality. Yeah. And even things that might feel like it's for the body actually end up being for the mind. But it's over time by committing and dedicating and practicing a very important word that I think we often don't include in the conversations around well-being is discipline. You know, we think of well-being, again, it's kind of a sell of the well-being industry. It comes sometimes, oh, fluffy, and it's so easy, and, like, well-being is so fluffy. Actually, well-being requires so much discipline. You need to be so disciplined with it to actually reap the benefits, and, and that's not a bad thing. And through the practice of discipline, you also develop resilience, and you learn to be confident in yourself. You learn that you can do something that's difficult and still benefit from it and overcome it. Yeah, some great tips there um certainly exercise for me i always say i'm never going to regret going for a run yeah. and i love to run outside in nature mm -hmm. sort of near where i live and that always resets my mind yeah. you know even if sometimes it's more like a walk or a kind of half jog half walk um but it's always going to have a benefit even if i can only do 10 minutes yeah exactly it's kind of just that point and um, like you know, oh god i can't bother to go to the gym even if you walk in and you do one set or three, yeah. or 20 minutes, when you want, when really usually you do 40 minutes, whatever, then you're going to have benefited from that even five minutes or two minutes you've been in there. And also mm. it's a cognitive thing. It's like by showing up, even though you didn't do like, you weren't as strong or whatever it was, you showed up and you still showed up. And there's something about mm -hmm. still showing up when things are difficult that teaches yeah. us that we can. And a lot of these things are like, like, you know, for example, I um, only get in the shower in the morning. Um, I get up in the morning. I get up at half six every day because I find routine is very important for your sleep. So I get up, I jump in the shower and I, it's on warm to start with. But I, I do a 30 second countdown on cold. So I'll do yes. that. And I do that every single morning. And I do it whether I feel like it or not, because you teach yourself again, it's the discipline of doing it and overcoming. And regardless of whatever happens in the rest of the day, I've overcome a challenge immediately. Before I yes. walk out my own bedroom, really, mm -hmm. um, I've actually overcome a challenge in my day. Mm -hmm. And there's something and then, really good about that. Definitely. Yeah. And then what's next for you? What's part of your sort of keeping your mental health in check on a daily basis? So You've got I'm, your cold shower. Yeah, cold shower. So you <laughs> up cold shower, you know, warm shower with the cold, cold then into it. And then I yeah. grab a coffee and go out for the walk. The walk for me, I, I mean, I started the Stompcast in the podcast yes. every Monday release a new episode and that the premise of that was simple was that I think that walking 
in nature is probably one of the best things you can do for your mental health. You get out in the morning, you have natural sunlight, it triggers the brain to wake up, you get a dopamine reward for being outside in nature, and it sets your circadian rhythms, your sleep cycle mm -hmm. by being in light in the morning. It tells you that in 12, 15 hours, the brain needs to start going to sleep, so it helps you sleep. Walking and movement is fantastic for productivity, for getting yourself in the right cognitive mindset. You're also achieving something. Like if you do want to do your 5,000 or 10,000 steps a day, you're working towards a goal immediately. Um, and I think this, it provides so many opportunities to see new things. Like I do the same route, similar, similar route every day, and I see something new every day. I look at it yeah. in a different way, or I bump into a different dog, or I meet a person. There's so much social aspects to being outside. Mm -hmm. you, I, I walk a dog. I've got my dog Rolo and we, we bump into other dogs and you get to know people. So yes. you're immediately putting out there into the world and into your day that you are setting yourself up for a good day. And sometimes, again, you know, the, it's raining, it's horrible, you don't feel like it. But doing it despite not feeling like it is a really important thing because doing it despite not feel like, feeling like it means, again, that you're teaching yourself that doing things that are difficult sometimes are worthwhile because you'll feel better at the end. And I've never come back, as I said, I've never come back from a walk and gone, I regret that walk. You know, sometimes I come back feeling happier than other times. And other times I'm like, oh God, that was amazing. Other times I'm like, oh, I'm a bit soggy and wet because it's raining. But I've never come back and gone, I really wish I hadn't gone outside. You're so right. Yeah. I mean, it was only sort of an injury or something like that when you actually physically can't. But that's kind of pushing yourself, being part of that mm. journey you know, as, just as important as the actual exercise or the mm -hmm. walk that you're doing. Now, what could you recommend to anyone listening who is worried about the mental health of somebody that they know? How um, could they open a conversation mm -hmm. with them? Mm -hmm. I think um, everyone experiences times, probably on a yearly, monthly, weekly basis, where they're worried about someone that that might be a ongoing issue. It might be someone at work they're now worried about. I think it's something universal. So I think it's always worth learning about having these conversations as much to learn about how you can be more open, but also how you can approach other people. And there's a three-step approach that I generally advise to people that I think you can use in most circumstances. Uh, and that is as follows. So first of all, trust your gut. Uh, I mean, gut instinct. Oh, people often ask me, like, how do I know if someone's struggling? Your gut will tell you. You know, it's based on your your learned understanding of what they, how they behave, their normal energy, how they speak, how they look at you, what they say, are they showing up? Are they present but not present? Are they not coming anymore along to coffee time whenever you usually meet at lunch or whatever it is? Mm -hmm. Just noticing things that you feel different and going with your gut. Yeah. Gut instinct is usually right. Once you've trusted your gut, then I, we say ask twice. So, you know, approach a conversation whereby you're like, right, you know, Alex, I, I, I just feel at the moment, you know, you don't seem yourself. I just want to check in and see how are you. And the ask twice around the premise that often people go, yeah, 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 I'm fine. Uh, it was that immediate kind of stand, like not standoffish, but as Brits, we often just say we're fine. Yeah. You know, I, I know you say that, but you know, my gut really does say something's not right. You know, are you honestly okay? It gives that true invitation to people that I'm really actually asking, like, how are you actually doing? And most of the time, that will trigger for them if they are struggling to say, do you know what I am? Or it might be like, I don't think I can talk about it right now, but maybe we'll talk later. Or it might be like, that they go away from that conversation and they've said, yeah, yeah they're fine, but they think about and reflect themselves. Because sometimes when people are struggling, they don't realize themselves and they come back mm -hmm. later to you. Either way, that person will feel seen. So that's the first good thing. And then the third step is that if they do open up to you, signpost, don't fix. Don't attempt to fix people. And that's actually regardless of your medical background. You might be a psychiatrist. If it's someone in your personal life or a colleague, it's not your role to fix that person. You know, if we're a doctor, we're seeing a patient in A&E or in the environment that we work, that is our patient. But if it's our family member, that's not our patient, it's our family member. So don't try and fix that person. And I think sometimes as humans, we try to tidy things up when they're not tidy. And so saying, you know, Alex, look, I, I, you know, I can see and I feel that, you know, you're, you're not in the best, maybe not feeling that great. You know, I know you say you're, you're struggling. I obviously don't know everything you're going through. I have all the answers, but I can be your friend. I'm here for you. What would feeling better look like to you? What would getting help look like to you? And how can I help you do that? So it could be then signposting in the workplace or support services. A great one to remember is Hub of Hope. It's an online directory of services that people can access. You just put in Hub of Hope into Google, put in their postcode as to where you're from, um, and then you get a whole list of support services, what they do, when they're open, how, how you access them. It's a really great one to advise. What was it called again, Alex? The Hub of Hope. 
the hub of hope. Yeah. Okay, it's that's a great really... one to remember. If you're going to remember mm. one, that's probably the one to remember because depending right. on what your issue is, there's a various degree of needs or places that you know. There's you might need some kind of support. You might need a different kind of support. So that yeah, that would be my kind of advice as to as to one to remember. So so um, trust your gut. Uh, ask twice. Yeah. Signpost. Don't fix. I mean, those are the three steps. And and also just don't overthink the question. Like if I was limping and walking in the office, I'm going to oh Alex, you're limping. How's your ankle? What's going on? You wouldn't think about how you're going to approach. I'm not going to go away and think for like two weeks about how I'm going to ask someone if their ankle's okay. Just remember that the reason that you feel awkward about it is because of stigma and stigma yes. exists because we allow it to exist. If you just go, actually, I'm just asking this person that I know very well if they're okay, it's actually a completely normal thing to do. Just yeah. ask them. And don't put, like, mm. be afraid to go, go, you know, my gut is that you don't see yourself or I've noticed you just, you know, you're not quite yourself at the moment. Just say it as it is. Don't be afraid, you know. Is someone going to be offended, truly offended by the fact that you cared about them? They're not. Because even if they go, you know, even on the 1% chance, and it is vastly less likely that you are wrong, but on the 1% chance that actually they are okay, and maybe they're just having a quiet week, but they are actually genuinely okay, they're probably going to come away pretty glad that there's someone out there that if they were struggling, they would notice. So there's no neg- yes. there's no downsides to checking in on someone. Yeah. Yeah, you're so right. It's about normalising that conversation around mental fitness, which is why I'm so glad that you wrote A Better Day, which I bought immediately as soon as I heard about it for my two young boys. Because again, it's normalising that conversation about mental health from an early age. You know, unfortunately, the phrase mental health didn't really exist when I was growing mm-hmm. up, which seems unbelievable now. Your health was your physical health. Um, yeah, but now we're much more aware. It was very synonymous with a negative thing as well, wasn't it? I mean, I mean, so the mind, men, the mind manual is for adults and it's for people that have grown up probably whereby there's a lot of things that they've been, they've learned or understood that needs to kind of be readjusted, repackaged, re-understood, relearned because it's what we've been kind of socialized with or educated with or or lack of educated in our lives whereas a better day the idea is actually taking those concepts and implementing them from an earlier age so depending on the reading age eight up all the way to kind of 14 15 parents have told me to sometimes say stop saying it's a children's book because if you haven't learned it it can be helpful for them like if you're a parent and you want to understand how to educate your child and what tools might be helpful then read a better day because you will learn the two, you learn a lot of the theory and also you learn how age appropriate, how to actually uh, kind of approach them with the, mm-hmm. the tools that you can use in your day to day to to talk with them and have conversations with young people about mental health. People often ask me like, how old or how old should you be to teach people about mental health? Well, I think if you're old enough to have thoughts and feelings, then surely you're old enough to kind of begin yes. to understand them. Yeah, it's never too early in Not my really opinion just- too. And one of the my key takeaways from that book is that it is all about talking and communicating and knowing that you've got family and friends and people that you trust around you that you can talk to. Yeah. Keeping that conversation going with the young mm. people. The thing about mental health is that it does require people to kind of open their mouths and talk. Like, of course, the, you know, we know 90% of communication is nonverbal. But it still requires, for most of mental health things to kind of be addressed, it does require that person to open up and talk. And that is very different to physical health. I can go into A&E, and yeah, it's obviously it's very helpful if I tell the doctor, like, I've been having chest pain for six hours and all this kind of thing. But we can diagnose something and treat it without it really matting how much. Like, if you've got a blocked artery, I can take you to theatre. Well, I wouldn't, a cardiologist would open yeah. your artery and it'll treat you and you'll get better. But with mental health, even if you think just about medication, then it still requires someone to talk to you, to say that they need help, to be open to help, to, you know, if there's so much around, yes. that there's so much requirement versus physical health mm-hmm. for that person to, to talk. And if you can create a society whereby people will talk about how to build good fitness, fit mentally and physically, to be able to talk about what uh, good coping mechanisms and what bad coping mechanisms and also to learn to talk about times that they're struggling. It just makes it so much easier to prevent Mm. problems becoming big issues. And like with anything in life, the sooner you tackle an issue, the better and less likely that there are severe outcomes of that. Like if if I have a blocked artery in my heart and I go straight away in the first five minutes to the hospital and that artery's unblocked, 
the likelihood of cardiovascular damage or damage to my heart wall is much smaller than if I wait five weeks. In fact, it's, it, it is a, it's an exponential. If it's after five weeks, the damage is so much bigger. And that's not mm-hmm. to say that it can't be fixed or there can't be improvement, but it is so much worse. You know, if you if you're experiencing struggles or you're even starting to question whether you're experiencing struggles, now is the time to ask. People often ask me, Alex, when, how do I know when I need help? If you're asking yourself, do I think I might need help or how do I know, then you've answered your question. It's the most yeah. interesting thing. And in light, honestly, I, I found people like feeling quite enlightened after considering that because often they're like, oh, am I bad enough? Am I sick enough? Do I need to... like? If you're asking that, then yes, you need to get help. And, and no doctor or person I, I, that I know of or would hope ever exists would feel annoyed that someone has come too early. Like I've never gone, yes. gone oh, God, I'm so annoyed this person came in as they had severe angina but rather than when they blocked up an artery. I'm so, damn it, why did they come in? Why didn't they come in when they were sicker? I've never done that. I, but I have often gone, damn, I wish this person had come in sooner. Why didn't they come in two days ago when they first had crushing chest pain? Why didn't they, mm-hmm. you know? So don't yeah. ever think, oh God, am I bad enough? Like nonsense. Like, you're, like if you're even thinking about it, I'd rather people think about their mental health before they even feel bad, let alone yeah. when they do feel bad. But if you're thinking, am I sick enough? Am I bad enough? Am I struggling enough? You know your answer. You mentioned going to see your therapist this morning before this conversation. Do you think everybody should have access to a therapist, same as we all have access to a GP? It's interesting because there are schools of thought where psychiatrists might talk and, and, and therapists say that it is a medical tool therapy that's, you know, perhaps we shouldn't just, everyone shouldn't just have therapy. That being said, I think not many people would agree disagree that lots of the things from therapy that we learn about you know like cbt like cognitive behavioral therapy kind of like how we act and react in life how we deal with thoughts and feelings how we process actions and results that's benefit beneficial for everyone so i think the concepts should be applicable to everyone do i think Mm. way less people have therapy than need therapy absolutely so i want i think the question is rather than everyone should have therapy i think everyone should have access to therapy and um, mm-hmm. do I think that most people would benefit from it? Yes, because we live in a society where most people haven't been taught about thoughts and feelings, about good well-being, about mental practice, about reflective practice. So if most people haven't been taught that, then most people probably need re-educating, yeah. re-supporting, relearning, you know, reflection. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it is. I think some people don't, some people don't find therapy that helpful sometimes, but I often think that or suspect that might be because they're not in the place to be open to it helping. Yeah. It does require, as we go back to what we said, it has to have, you have to be open to it. If you're not open mm. to it, then it's not going to do anything. Um, yeah. And, it, and again, it requires some hard work. I've been, and again, obviously I'm privileged. I pay for my therapist. I, it is the best money I spend every week. I am happy to pay for it, but I'm lucky that I can. I'm fortunate that I can pay for it. I, and I accept that. But it's hard work. You know, people think that therapy is, I go then it's kind of fluffy. Like it's kind of, I'm tired after it. It is hard work. Yeah, I bet. You're going through stuff and you're, and it's challenging and some of it's painful, you know, and, and, and again, that a lot of being in a good place or getting to a good place at least is going through difficult stuff. So again, therapy requires dedication and time. I've been going for a long time. I've got a lot of issues, so it makes sense. But I have a lot of things to deal with, so therefore I've been going for a long time, and that's fine. I mean, I'm, I'm completely like cool and fine with that because for me, it it helps. And and having someone that professionally can look at your scenario, look at your ways of processing, and give you professional expert advice, but also from someone who's not biased. Like yes. we all have a bias, we have a bias as a friend, we have a bias as a partner, we have a bias as a child, we have a bias as a colleague. We all have our biases in any relationship we have. And arguably, even a therapist will have a bias because their bias is to help you. You know, they're there to help you. So there is a bias in some sense, but they are as close to someone being unbiased as you can probably get. Mm. Or giving you the tools to be able to help yourself <laughs> as well. Because you're right, in the friendship situation, you mentioned trying not trying to fix it's a natural go-to to want to make somebody feel better. Not all advice is good advice. Yes, and exactly. All, and everybody's different. Not all good. Not all counsel is good counsel. 
and even mm. when it's meant to be the best intention. Yeah, and when it's well meant, but um, we're all completely individual and how somebody might choose to fix a problem is not going to be the same mm. way that you would. Mm. Now, we're going to dive into your reset moments that you've given to me mm. before this chat. Mm. And the first one was a big sort of moment that yeah. saw a turning point in your life was making the decision to leave A&E. Tell me about this. Well, it's about, it's almost like two years now since I, I left, I think. I, you know, I left A&E because I had to make a decision. I was burning out, basically, trying to work in A&E. I'd taken on the role as Youth Mental Health Ambassador. So I, for context of people who don't know, I volunteer in this role. I don't work for the government. I'm not, I'm not, I don't represent their decisions. Equally, I don't, you know, my job basically is there to try and work with these people to try and get the best outcomes for the mental health space. That's basically my job um, and to represent young people. So I work with experts and I work with young people and I work with parents and teachers and charities to try and, you know, do something positive with it. Is that about amplifying awareness of uh, mental health? Some of it is, but also it's getting the hard work done. So I've the two, I mean, one thing, so I've been spending the last three years trying to get mental health hubs funded uh, across the country. So um, these would be for under 25s because we know those are those include a lot of transitional points in life. For early access to support, wraparound support, tackling things like loneliness, thinking about ways of building connections, thinking about tackling problems early, providing access to therapy without long wait lists, those kind of things within these hubs. So um, that's a tangible outcome I've been working towards. I managed to secure £80 million, which went towards mental health support teams at schools. So that was a tangible outcome. And the other thing I'm working on is trying to change legislation in the workplace. So looking to have a legislative framework whereby employees are expected to have mental health support, which I think seems pretty obvious in the workplace. Oh, yeah. It's just like yeah. there's, there's legislation that over if you have over 250 staff in your business, then you have to have physical first aiders. So one in 50 is the physical first aider uh, ratio. I mean, this should, should at least be the same for, for, for mental health. If we remember yeah. that number one cause of death under 35 years old is suicide. And we remember that mental health is probably a lot more, mental illness is probably a lot more prevalent in the workplace than perhaps physical Ill illness is mm -hmm. seen, perhaps. Then we should at least have parity, if not better. So there's kind of tangible things. But yeah, of course, there's, I mean, a lot of what I do anyways is tackling the stigma uh, kind of stuff. But I mean, I going back to your question, I mean, the reason... I left is because I couldn't do it all. You can't do everything. Yeah. You have to make a decision. And I'd given my blood, quite literally, actually, in many ways, sweat and tears to A&E, not just during the pandemic, before I'd given everything I think I could give. And there's also a point where you have to think, like, if am I spending, like, if I've got this platform and I've got this ability to do these things and also I have, the, like, the mindset that I can do this, is it right that I'm spending my time in A&E? I should be out mm -hmm. there doing it. And that was a decision that I made. It was a huge turning point. I think, I'm not saying my health immediately improved as a result of it, but I think it allowed the space whereby now I've constructed a life that is perhaps more conducive with being healthy mentally and physically. Uh, and so if I'd have carried on doing shifts in A&E, I mean, I wouldn't be able to do it. I'd have given up on all this by now. There's no way. I could yeah. So I guess the, the point is if I hadn't have left, I wouldn't be here now having written three books around mental health, yes. having done all the campaigns, doing multiple school tours, creating content. You know, I think um, people, I think, do, people really do appreciate it. I'm not saying people aren't appreciative of it, but I think sometimes if you, and why would you know? But if you're not a creator, you don't realize sometimes how much work goes into creating content. You know, it takes, I sit, you know, with my team, we sit down and think like what videos will be helpful? What are the concepts? How do we make yeah. approachable? You know, the, you know, video reel on Instagram might've taken 10 hours to put together between concept mm -hmm. to film to edit it's a lot and then that's let alone engaging with the community as the content goes out and a misconception is that you're paid by instagram to post these things i get paid a penny from instagram i think tiktok i've i think i've made in the last three years or four years i think i've got a thousand pounds in the creator fund or something from all of the videos and content i've done bearing in mind i've got eight hundred thousand followers and i've done not i'm not a big big tiktoker but i do quite a few videos you know two or three a week you know, I think sometimes there's, I think that's worth remembering um, as well in that sense. So, yeah, what I'm saying is it is a big commitment. And to do that and work in A&E, it was too much. Um, you know, yeah. I also have a life amongst everything. Uh, life is short. I don't want to die and think I didn't live my own personal life. 
And I also got to be able to, yeah, have a business to make money to fund all this stuff because I love going around the country visiting schools, but it costs me a yeah. lot of money. I've got a team that works for me. I've got to pay their wages. So there's a lot of things to think about. And mm. I had to therefore make decisions. And one of those decisions, something that had to go was A&E. And yeah. I have zero regret. It's been nearly two years since I've left and there's no regrets. I have very fond memories. I spoke to one of the consultants I used to work with very recently and you know it was, it, was, it was nice they kind of said that they were really proud of me and what I was doing and and that was great and I, I often have good memories and think back to times mm. but that was a different time you know yeah you were ready to move into a new chapter mm. which is why I'm so passionate about this whole concept of resetting because often there can be a lot of negativity around walking away from something or saying no or mm. you know burnout the terminology is often quite negative when actually you were growing into the next chapter I think nothing life. lasts forever I think in life we know that in love in life in 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 everything nothing lasts forever everything has a start middle and end whether we like to accept that or not it's the truth and by uh, literally life is like that you are mm -hmm. born you live a bit in the middle and then you're not here anymore it's like that is how life works so you know i think being able to understand and not hold on to and that's where it is challenging and uh you know that with, even with relationships and breakups it's hard because we hold on to the idea of the past maybe the ideas that we had we hold on to the nostalgia but sometimes the chapter's closed and it's very difficult to or impossible in some ways to to go back even though in some ways we want to and you know there's parts of A&E where I think oh gosh you know I could go to A&E and I'd work there and it would be different I'm not saying obviously working in A&E is life and death but in many ways I find it, it it easier than doing some of the stuff there's less unknowns than the world I work mm. in like, I can work towards these hubs for three years and they might never be funded. I don't think that's true. I think we are really getting there. But, you know, that might be the case. And yeah. all, like, I mean, it doesn't mean the good work is wasted and all that kind of stuff, but there are a lot more uncertainties in this world than, than there are. I mean, even from the sense that when I worked in A&E, even though the pay was absolutely awful, um, I think, for what you're doing, um, I at least knew that every month I knew what I was getting in my wage packet. There's no certainty in this world at all. Yeah. At all. No violin. I'm not sitting here with a violin. I'm very fortunate in my life, but there's no guarantees. And yes. some of that brings stress. So some of resetting sometimes means, what I'm trying to say is that sometimes having a reset means you have to accept new risk, the possibilities of things being good or potentially mm -hmm. don't work out. Um, and being adaptable, I would, I could go back. I could go back to A and E. I would need to do my homework and research the new drugs and the new treatments because the world changes very, very quickly. Yeah. You know, I was, a, I can say, I say with pride that I was a good A and E doctor. I was, I was working as a registrar. I was confident. I was good. I was capable. But if I went back now, I'd have to really, really kind of go through a process of reappraising and kind of going in. I guess working at a lower level, like being much more cautious and careful and checking on everything you know because you build a different skill set in the last two years what where i've let go of that skill set i've learned like i'm literally doing a master's around public mental health i've learned so much like i would say now that i am an expert in mental health i've got mm -hmm. so much lived experience i've got so much professional experience there's very few people i think have visited so many schools as i have and across all sorts of different backgrounds i've been all the way up to the north parts of scotland i've been to the south coast of england i've been across the the west coast of wales over to ireland i've been everywhere there's not many people that have probably visited more schools than i have so yeah it's um it's been um it's been amazing in the sense of letting go and the reset has allowed me to learn a new skill set and to build new mm -hmm. things sometimes in order to create space for something new you have to let go of something old <clears throat> yes you're right and was losing your brother part of that motivation to put your focus on mental health? I think it already was there. I was the, it was kind of the bittersweet of it all that I was already doing mm. it. Publicly, people yeah. were aware because it was like, right, every, it was headline news. It was all this kind of stuff. Like it was very publicly a, a, a big story at the time, I guess. I know there's mm -hmm. no other way of putting that. Um, I think people could feel publicly the kind of sense of, awfulness and, it, and injustice in a way you know I was there in a &E on my own in London all my family at home and then as soon as the lockdown finishes bam and um, there was I think even I can <laughs> feel comfortable to say that it felt quite unfair um yeah I think people felt that um mm -hmm. and of course then people became aware of the work that I did thereafter but yeah I was always very passionate about it probably from my own experience I've struggled with my mental health 
probably since university, probably before then, actually, just only really recognized it at university. And I just don't want other people to suffer in silence. And so that is the premise yes. of my work, really. I want people to rather than suffer in silence, I want us to get them help, but also want to prevent people from suffering or at least mitigate the amount of time we spend in our lives suffering. It's impossible to avoid, avoid you know, I'd love to say, like, uh, we can avoid suffering in our lives. I mean, it's impossible. You know, we are all going to face horrible, difficult stuff. And by telling a lie and saying, oh, we can make life rosy for everyone is nonsense. And it's it's not true. But we can help people deal with stuff. I mean, you know, stuff like I read a stat the other day that 85 percent of relationships end, you know, so therefore, like, should we never have relationships because they might end? Because we all know yeah. painful and horrible. You might be dumped or you might have dumped someone. You might have regrets. It might have been awful. You might have got your heart broken. Do we not go into relationships then? Or we know that loneliness is a bigger killer than smoking 15 cigarettes a day so do we what do we should we all be lonely no you've got to go into things knowing that life will bring ups and downs it might go wrong a relationship probably will end actually like that's the general um thing of it but it doesn't mean that you can't have a wonderful relationship that's enriching that teaches you things that is enjoyable that elevates you that that makes you an even better person you know there's a way of looking at things that goes you know it's like um with my brother, like, do I wish he didn't live because that he died? Like, should we therefore re wipe all of his history and that he wasn't here anymore? Of course not. Do I wish the pain that me and my family lived with on any on anyone else? No, not my worst enemy, actually. I think it's among, amongst the cruelest things to happen in any family. I haven't experienced a lot of other cruel things, but I would say, you know, I think it's up there. Yeah. And I wouldn't wish it on someone, but that doesn't mean that I don't wish he was alive, that I didn't wish that he'd lived. Still, we listen, lived a worthwhile life. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that is, that's something I reflect on quite a lot. Mm -hmm. Does acceptance have to come into it? Acceptance? Uh, what, in terms, of, in terms of accepting his death, do you mean? Yeah. I think it's... Um, I, th I think you can accept that someone's died. I think we don't have to accept that, that you're okay with it. I mean, like, yeah. I think the part of the thing with grief is that people try and get over grief. It's kind of like, if I'd reframe that question, are you ever okay that your mother died? Are you ever okay that your daughter died? Is it okay that <clears throat> this person you love died? What an odd thing to try and achieve. To be like, mm. you know what, I'm... You will mm. always miss them. Well, it's like, yeah. I think it's much more to learn, live, to learn to live with the fact that they're gone and to learn to live with the grief and, you know, having a healthy view on grief and the importance and reflection and memories and feeling grief, you know, rather than trying to get over it. I mean, I, I always find it very odd when people say trying to get over grief. It's like, mm. what am I trying to achieve here? To go like, do you know what? I'm really actually quite cool that Clear has died. I'm cool with it. That would be bizarre, wouldn't it? Yeah. And, and yeah. that's actually what society is asking people to do a lot of the time. Rather than go, do you know what? I'm going to process my grief and think about the, the emotions and things around it and get to a point where I can open the box and look and go, gosh, I remember these memories. I remember these amazing times. Oh, that was sad as well. Oh, gosh, it is sad that he's gone. But it doesn't affect the entire functionality of your life. It doesn't floor you for three weeks. It doesn't stop you from also being a mother, a daughter, a friend, or whatever. Yeah. You know, you're able to dip in and out of that box. And you can do that. You can learn to do that. There's always things that will shake you up and you will see something that will shake you. It's like when you, I don't know, if you're, if you're I don't know, you see something that reminds you of an ex-partner that you had or something props up and you just, it, it shakes you. But then you, within a few moments or minutes or hours, you go back to just carrying on with life. That's the goal. Mm. Not not being okay that someone's died, I don't think is the goal. No, no, you're right. And how do you practice self-care when you do have those shaken sort of moments? Um, What's your go-to? I think trying to avoid avoidance. I think all of our attitudes and all of our behaviours should be avoiding avoidance. Um, and avoidance is whereby you pick up your phone, you're going on something that gives you dopamine or you drink alcohol or you try and avoid that. You do anything you can to avoid that thought. And all you're doing is suppressing something. You're not dealing with it. So recognizing avoidance is the biggest thing. Feeling your feelings um, is very important. And then using grounding. You know, once you're, if you're very distressed or you find that you've kind of sat in it enough, like you've sat with that feeling enough and you need to kind of click it on now and move it on, then practicing grounding. So grounding just means bringing yourself back to the present moment. It might be having a cold shower, it might be going for a walk, listening to a song that always lifts you, calling a friend that always mm. lifts you out of that thought. Like those are the grounding techniques that you can use. Again, these are yeah. what I talked about in the mind manual, talk about the mind manual, particularly around grief and stuff like that. 
it's it's just using the right techniques and things, but just avoiding avoidance. You can't avoid pain. To avoid pain is insanity because you are going to repeatedly do the same thing with the same outcome that you constantly feel pain. So don't yeah. avoid, avoid avoidance. Probably my biggest thing I'd tell anyone in life, just avoid avoidance. Yes. Now, your second reset moment is going alcohol-free. Tell me about why you made that decision. I think the biggest thing, like I said, I think it was um, awareness that it was um, that I was focusing on my health. I was in this process of, of resetting myself back to how I like to be and the practices that I have in my day and not being avoidant of things. Food, alcohol, coping mechanisms that are harmful are often just ways of either self-soothing, self-harming or avoiding or a mixture of all of them. Um, and so I, for me, you know, I, I, I'm very aware that I, I don't have an addiction. I stopped drinking. I didn't find the act of stopping physically drinking difficult. And for those that do find it, there is no judgment on that at all. Um, get, seek the support that you need. Addiction is an illness like any other. It's not like any other in terms of it's li literally, but it, it is an illness and should be respected in that way and to get the right support alcohol anonymous your gp there's plenty of places to get support so if you are struggling to stop then please do for me it was a choice that i made because i wanted to be uh, feeling my feels i wanted to deal with my grief i wanted to get back into fitness i wanted to develop and refine the relationship with food that i knew that i used to have that was healthy and I just wanted to be a more present person in the world. I wanted to be present. Mm. And this is not from a place of someone who was drinking bottles of whiskey every night. I was, I was two or three nights a week, I'd have some drinks. And like, yeah, maybe on a Friday night, I'd have like five, six pints or whatever, which I know a lot of people, especially in London, would go, oh, that's just, that's normal. But just because everyone mm. else does it doesn't mean it's good for you. No. But, but I think um, even that, and especially going into my 30s, having four or five pints, six pints on a Friday night, even if that's all I had all week, is enough to knock me off till Monday. And I don't want to be like yeah. that. Um, you know, if you drink every Friday night of the year, unless you're... Well, very few, because a lot of times I don't have hangovers. A lot of people say that because they don't want to address the fact that they do feel hungover. Let's accept that most people after five, six pints will probably feel something the next day. Mm. If you're taking 10, 20, 30, 40% off your day, sometimes even more if you're really hungover, that means you're losing 52 days of your year to hangovers. That's a pretty poor return on your investment, I think. That's the way mm -hmm. I see it. So the four or five hours of... And if we, and, and this is if even if we accept that drinking is, is fun and good for, and good, because a lot of the time when you drink, you have your arguments, you make bad decisions and so on, you might eat badly, you might pull out with your girlfriend. Even if we accept that it's all rosy and happy when you're drinking, I'm not sure five hours is worth losing a whole entire day. I also think that in reality, it's not just one day. You know, your sleep is often not better for several nights. You might even be until Monday morning until you feel better. Mm. Often you'll drink on a Friday badly on a Saturday. Maybe you'll have a few more drinks on Saturday and you feel worse on Sunday and Monday. So, I don't know. For me, I just didn't feel the payoff was worthwhile. I don't know if, I, if I'm going to commit and say, I'm going to be alcohol-free forever. I don't know. How long is forever? Um, yeah. You know, but I do, what I, what I can say is that if I go back to drinking alcohol, it would be with a very different relationship with it. Mm -hmm. And I, I wouldn't go back to the way I used to drink alcohol. And I don't think I was in any way ab abnormal, quote-unquote, to most people's relationship with alcohol of my age, especially in cities like London. I don't think I, my relationship was would stand out. I just... Yeah, I don't think it was for me was healthy. So I just mm. didn't want to continue like that. Well, you were able to recognise that there was a negative aspect to the drinking. Um, and that is quite shocking when you add up all of those days of a hangover in a year. And money, costs and calories. And I love calories. Calories are amazing. They allow me to go and play tennis and exercise. Yeah. and minimise calories for some reason in this society. But what you don't want is dead calories. And alcohol is such a dead calorie. There's literally nothing useful in that stuff at all. No. So many calories in it. Like the calories you get from fruit and from, you know, uh, carbs that are, you know, that are nourishing from your porridge oats, from your whatever, and your protein and things like that. Those things are, those are, and your fats, your good fats, like those are great ways to get calories and like get as much mm. as you can, stuff active and fit and moving. But the calories I was getting from there was making me pile on weight, it was making me lethargic, it was making me feel unhealthy, making my body just yeah. happy. So, yeah. Reframing is so powerful, isn't it? Focusing on what you gain. Like you said, that extra day to play tennis and rather than what you're giving up. Yeah, well, especially... I mean, you, you give up. I mean, people go, oh, you've given up this huge thing. Well, actually, you're letting go of one thing to get back everything else. Yeah. 
You're giving up this. Yeah. And really, if you say this way, you're giving up a really quite a small thing. You can still go to every event you went to. You can still engage and actually argue even more present. But by letting go of this one thing, everything in your life is likely to be better. That doesn't mean it'll be easier. And it doesn't mean your problems will go away. It just means you'll actually deal with your problems or at least confront them. Like this idea you stop drinking all of a sudden, you're not in pain. I mean, that's not true because alcohol is quite a clever numbing agent. I mean, I don't, mm. it does cause pain in different ways. But in terms of confronting it in a healthy way, all of a sudden you're faced with your anxiety if you go to social situations. All of a sudden you're faced with the things that you messed up in your life and you have to deal with it. And that is not a bad thing. Absolutely. And have you discovered the fantastic range of low alcohol and non-alcoholic beers that yeah, are out there at the moment? It's changed so much in the last few years. I yes, love it. I, absolutely. I, I love it. You know, and one of the biggest things actually, food tastes better when you don't drink alcohol. It's all the smoke. Yes. Very much the same with alcohol. Alcohol damages our epithelial layers, it damages actually most things that it touches. And therefore, it affects our taste and taste perception when you stop mm. contrary to belief. There are so many great alternatives now, yeah. sort of more than ever. Yeah. I've become quite a connoisseur in um, alcohol-free yeah. beers. Yeah. I love so if it. you need any tips. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And, and even then, I, I also just realized I love, I, love, I love my fizzy water. I love sparking water. I love, I love yes. water. And you just realize, actually, like I, I think we associate relaxing and feeling in a good mood with drinking but actually mm. if you're with your friends you're just having a good time anyway you just i don't know i it's each to their own and, and i would scare and say i i my friends still drink i i would have a girlfriend that drunk it wouldn't stop me for it doesn't i don't judge people for it i just mm -hmm. my only the only accountability and the only decisions you need to make in terms of in terms of these things is for your health you might have boundaries where I'm not accepting someone else's relationship in my life with alcohol because it's affecting mine. That's a separate boundary and that's absolutely mm. a different conversation. But ultimately, I don't think badly of other people because they drink. I was that person. But right now in my life, that's not what I want. And therefore, I'm just yeah. what I want to do. So. Where you've got to a place of being an evolved human being who understands themselves. Well, I don't know. I'm trying to learn. <laughs> the more I dig in, the more I try and learn, the more you think, gosh, you haven't got this kind of sorted. And that's the other thing I'd say to you as well. Like, as I talked to you today, the stuff I'm dealing with at the moment, which I'm not, it's not fixed, it's not tidy, it's not sorted, it's messy. And that's okay. Like, I, I honestly don't know if anyone has their stuff sorted in life. I don't know if anyone really gets everything finished and gets everything tidy. There's very few human beings that walk around with all their all this crap and order. Absolutely. So, you know, I'm not sat here now being like, I've got every, all my stuff sorted. There's so much stuff that's messy in my life that I haven't worked out and I'm still trying to get through and that isn't, that isn't sorted. You know? Yeah, well, that's exactly why we are here in this podcast and why I was so keen to open up these conversations with people like you so that everybody listening can understand that nobody's got it all sorted. You know, you might see a, an image of perfection online, but really the reality is often and very often so different. Mm. Now, before we go, I just wanted to ask you a bit about mental health and the digital world, because mm. I know certainly it's a hot topic mm. for me amongst lots of parents that I know about how we manage our children's digital consumption mm. without making them feel excluded. And again, that comes down to perfectionism as well. I think that we can't control the fact that the digital world is going to be a very big and important part of their lives but we can control their relationship with it from an early age. Do you have any advice on that subject? Well, the as a whole, it's a huge topic of its own, but I, I mean, I, and I spend a lot of time on this. It's obviously very important. You know, I, I very much have been keeping a close eye on the, on the online harms bill. I've interviewed ministers about it. I've been really, I guess, keen on the whole topic. First thing I would say is online harms bill is we currently have nothing. I think it'll go quite far. I'm not saying it'll do it all the way, but I think we're going from nothing to something. So I think that's good. Accountability for platforms, how they should be. I mean, like mm. you're making money out of people being online. You're accountable for what goes on on, on, on your platform. Um, I think the argument people talk about is social media good or bad? Should we have it? Should we not? First of all, it's not going anywhere. So let's learn to mitigate some of the harmful facts and educate because honestly, as parents, I'm sure a lot of parents say they click their fingers and get rid of it. I'm with you. I'm, I, I'm not fully with you because I, I think there are a lot of amazing parts of social media and things like I discovered I had ADHD eight months ago. 
that as social media has helped me so much about learning and community and I've learned more online and I've gained more from the community than I have mm. anywhere else so you know there's good or bad but I can understand specifically for parents why they'd want to click their fingers and get rid of it but you can't so I think yes there's education is huge it's why I talked about it in the better day and why I'm passionate mm-hmm. about it with schools that we should be teaching primary school kids about it we know that children shouldn't be on social media you're supposed to be 16 but the average age by the age of 13 the vast majority are on there Mm -hmm. so what do we do do we not talk about and pretend it doesn't exist or do we face it i mean we face it and we educate but from a place of having open communication i'd say use the tools on instagram and stuff in terms of content moderation you can block keywords you can you can change the level of protection there is against harmful content online have dialogue honestly communication is the most important thing be a friend Mm -hmm. around social media with your child try and be careful around being a parent, and I say this, I'm not a parent. And parents go, oh, you, what do you know? You're not a parent. Absolutely, hands up, accept that. But I, I can say from, from speaking to a lot of kids and a lot of people that um, say, I can't talk to my parents about this, I can see it from the other side, whereby I think the communication, if it is a conversation, is open and it is as unjudgmental as possible, then you're more likely to be able to deal with it. Because let's be frank, when they're sat in their rooms on, on their phone, you can't control it. It's not like mm. alcohol where you could ban, if you wanted to, you could ban alcohol from the house. The phone's in their hands. So the only yeah. way that you can have any influence over what's going on is by having dialogue, is what I'm trying to say. I think mm. education, teaching about the positive effects, talking about the things that are harmful, going, have you thought about this? You know, and, and getting that conversation going early, I think is a huge thing. And I think at school, we should be educating. Look, most people's jobs are going to be online now aren't they like yeah. doctors are online doctors are on apps when i went to med school did i believe that gps would be on app they're on apps doing these things so everyone's going to be online it's the way the world is we might not like it but it is we can obviously make a choice ourselves not to be online absolutely but in reality a lot of people will be i think it's much more about like how do we protect ourselves harness the good side and as much as possible put up boundaries and protection against things that cause harm the one thing we do know is that screen time and mental illness symptoms are correlated. So the longer you're online, the more likely you are to experience distressing symptoms. So limit your screen time, create boundaries about who you follow, follow things to make you laugh because you won't yeah. laugh if that's why you're using it. You know, or if you're using it to learn about cooking, follow cooking accounts, but just don't end up following all these random accounts that make you feel bad mm-hmm. that have nothing to do with the reason why you joined the platform. You know, if you do anything in your life, know why you're doing it. Yes. Don't be a passenger in life. Be a driver of the car. You are a driver of the vehicle. Yeah. And do you ever have a digital detox? Um, I actually didn't think about doing another one recently. I think um, it's slightly different for me because uh, I've got two um, wonderful um, women that work with me and we, we work on the social media stuff together. And so I can step back at certain points whereby like they might post certain days of the week and I post other days of the week. Obviously I'm front facing, I'm involved in it and so on. Yeah. Is, I've certainly got more ability to be, have time out of it than I did before. I don't have to be on it every day. So yes, I do detox, but perhaps not in the kind of, I'm off for two weeks. Uh, it's mm. more that I, in certain days, I just won't really be on it. It'll be posted content that we've made before it goes out and yeah. really on. So yes, yes, I know. Yeah, I think I'm going to try and do that this summer. Set myself a bit. Some of a people go like August for a couple like, of weeks. Like some people yeah. go for all of August. Like the world's not going to end if you're not online. Exactly. Like, but like I did it once last year for two weeks, and I have to say, the first couple of days was really hard. Yeah, I mean, I, my finger was like automatically going to the Instagram icon on my phone. It's not a but after, you cannot stop it. But it's, there is a dopamine circuit. It's a dopamine. Yes. Reward. It's addictive. It is. But then after a week, I found it was so much easier. After a week, the second week was a breeze. Well, it takes, you know, I'd I'd reprogrammed. Yeah, exactly. There's two weeks to form a new habit takes on average. The average person takes two weeks to fully form a new habit. Mm. That makes sense. So you need yeah. to something for at least two weeks to know whether you can. Yes. Right. I'm going to publicly say now I'm doing that this August. There you go. See, so I can hold myself accountable. There you go. So I think that is a good place to end. Well, thank um, you Alex, me. thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed that chat. There were so many takeaways. You. You're absolutely brilliant. And I'm really glad that well, you know you we have me. somebody like you putting all of this goodness into the world and into our heads. Well, try my best. A great podcast and great idea as well. Really nice.
Alex is such a genuinely humble person who is really passionate about mental health and improved awareness and support for everyone. He's been through so much in his own life having lost his brother and the fact he's turned a personal tragedy into a means to support others is something truly inspiring. There are so many takeaways from this conversation, but three things that I particularly noted are... Number one, I love Alex's approach with regards to building mental fitness into your daily routine. He commits to going for a walk every morning, even if the weather's bad or he doesn't feel like it. And I know we've probably all been there, um, but he still gets himself out of the door every morning because he knows that there will be a benefit to his mental health. Number two, if you're worried about the mental health of somebody you know and care about, I love Alex's three-step approach. He talked about number one, trusting your gut, picking up the phone to that person. Number two, ask them twice. Don't take, yeah, I'm fine as the first answer, always ask again. And number three, signpost and don't try to fix them. The third thing I took away is however bad things feel, there is always hope. If you're struggling, you're normal and support for you is out there. Alex's recommendation of www.hubofhope.co.uk could be a great place to start if you're unsure about who you could talk to. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time. Thanks again to Tenor for sponsoring this episode. For more information, visit tenor.co.uk or give them a follow on Instagram or Facebook. And if you are worried about any symptoms associated with incontinence, always seek medical advice from your GP. Tenor Discreet Pads are available in all major retailers. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with your friends and I'd be so grateful if you could leave us a rating or a review. Don't forget to sign up to the In A Good Place newsletter for more discussion around personal development tips, the concept of resetting for success, and to share your thoughts with me. Simply visit hellomagazine.com and click on the newsletter icon at the top to register. I'll see you next time.